Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. And now, enjoy our latest episode. You opened my eyes. I get that. And so they went back and either updated their stories or wrote new stories. So that was part of a learning curve, I think, for the media, because they were not looking at what the human costs of what that was doing to the trans community. It's good to remind ourselves that the stories we cover can often affect change. And the choices we make in what we cover and how we cover it sometimes have real human consequences. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. This episode is being published on June 1st, the first day of Pride Month, and we wanted to take advantage of that milestone to talk about LGBTQ plus journalists and journalism and how well the media is covering LGBTQ plus issues. I'm joined by John Casey, who was recently named senior editor at The Advocate, which is the oldest and largest LGBTQ plus news site in the U.S. John, welcome to It's All Journalism. Michael, thank you very much for having me. Glad to be here. So first of all, happy Pride Month. Here we are, the first day of it. So you've had a really kind of interesting career, a long career, like myself, but you started out in PR, some would call the evil twin of, <laughs> of journalism. Tell me about how you went from the dark side to becoming a member of the resistance, becoming a journalist. As we talked about before, I started my career on Capitol Hill as a press secretary. And at the time, I was the youngest press secretary on Capitol Hill. And my boss at the time had been was being reprimanded by the House first time in 10 years. And then he had a child out of wedlock scandal in the next election. And then we were under federal grand jury investigation for training postage stamps for cash at the House Post Office. And if you've never been subpoenaed by a federal grand jury, you are not missing anything. So after that, I, I needed a breath. And by the way, I'm still in touch with him. He is going to be 96 next month or this month, and he's in great shape. So and I owe him that because he gave me the start of my career. So I moved to New York. I went to acting school for a couple of years, and then I got back into PR working for Ruderfin and Porter Novelli. And then I went to retail and went from media relations director from Toys R Us and Susan Kmart, then Macy's. Then I took a real sharp turn and I led a global campaign with the United Nations Foundation on behalf of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They are the body that does all the massive research reports on the state of the earth's climate. So we did that for two years running up to the 2015 Paris Treaty Accords. And our job was to media train the over 800 scientists around the world to better convey the science behind the reports. And at the same time, we also try to educate the media and get them to agree not to include skeptics in a story that they thought they were balancing because there is no balance. Climate change is real. Then I went and shifted and went to digital and worked for uh, Sapient Razorfish, which became Publicis Sapient, Publicis being the second largest media holding company in the world. And then I was most recently at Nielsen, the media ratings company, and unfortunately was one of 20% of the workforce that was laid off in January. And now here I am at The Advocate. Okay. <laughs> that is a varied uh, trip. So how'd you end up at the, the Advocate? You'd been writing columns for a while. It'll be four years this month. I just started 
sending them in and I drove the editor crazy by constantly sending in stuff that was newsworthy. And he started publishing and publishing. And then two years in, they brought me on as editor at large, which is more or less a freelance. And then my column began to build in popularity. I started getting some more prominent people to interview. And, and now it's the most read on the site. And I'm so happy to be there full time as a senior editor. So I've upped the columns. I just talked to Nancy Pelosi last month, sat down with her in New York for almost 45 minutes. Wonderful conversation. But getting A-list people, getting to talk primarily, of course, to the LGBTQ community. And particularly at this time, I'm trying to bring in not only voices to represent the trans community and the drag queen community, but I talked to John Fetterman and Sherrod Brown and Kelly and Michael and trying to bring in voices to uplift the spirits, shall we say, of the community during this tough time. And that's actually something I, I wasn't really kind of thinking about, but I heard somebody talking about, you know, if you're going to another country and you're covering these other countries that you don't know a whole lot about, but everything you, you learn about them is, you know, when there's a crisis or something. And there's certainly a lot of attention, been a lot of attention on the drag community, on the, the trans community, but these are people who have very rich lives and have very diverse stories that still need to be told. And I think it's kind of important for the wider understanding and acceptance of people in those communities. I'm glad you brought that up. A couple of years ago, I wrote a column, a very personal column about my own learning curve on trans people. You know, I've learned an immense amount where before I knew nothing by talking to them and listening and reading comments under my stories. And that column got spread far and wide to the trans community. And they were grateful that I was being honest about my approach and my learning curve, that, that I had one and still have one. And I think that's part of the issue right now is people are not familiar with transgender people. While most people know somebody who is gay or lesbian or bisexual, there's a very small sliver of society that actually knows somebody who is trans. And the media, in, in terms of entertainment, has done a good job in putting trans people in, in shows and so forth. I mean, the one that's on um, Otto, which I just saw on Netflix, the movie with Tom Hanks, there was a trans person in there. So they're popping up, but the media covering what's going on with the trans community right now and all these hateful legislation, they really do have a learning curve. Well, you had a learning curve. At what point did you recognize, I really kind of need to bring myself up to speed on this? And then how did you kind of remedy that? Well, it all came down to one thing. They're human beings. And they have families. Some of them are ostracized from their family. They have lives. They have loves in their life. They have jobs. They're part of communities. And yet so many of them have to hide or come to terms with who they are so late in life because they struggled so much. I'll give you an example. Bernie Wagenblast, who is the voice, she is the voice of the New York City subway. And her previous voice is embedded in the heads of all of us who live in New York City. And she came out last month, and I wrote a column about that, and I got a really lovely note back from her. But it's somebody like that who, in New York, and New York, yes, clearly more tolerant than a lot of other cities, but that is somebody that we heard from every single day at multiple points in our day. And there's a metaphor for that. There are trans people out there who are out there every single day, and they are doing 
living their lives every single day, doing their jobs like Bernie did every single day. So recognizing that they're human beings that have a life is so important. You kind of alluded to this before. What is it journalists aren't doing well? Or what is it they should be doing better? They do not understand that trans people are human. They are treating it as a political issue because the Republicans are treating it as a political issue. And they're covering it as a political issue and not a human interest or human crisis, which is what is going on. We hear more and more people who are deathly afraid of coming forward and, and living the lives we just talked about because they're under assault, particularly in red states and even in some blue states. You know, there was a poll out last week where people, while they don't like the fact that the trans community has come under assault, they agree, the majority they agree that there should be some anti-trans law. And that's absurd, particularly when it comes to children. And I know a couple of children who were around 15 and 16 who realized that they were trans. And it is a major process to get them to the point where they can be who they are. There are therapy sessions. The parents aren't pressing a button. And one day the child is a boy and the next day it's a, he's a girl. That's not what happens. And these legislators are making it seem like it's child abuse to help these kids. And that is so detrimental to their mental health, which is already an astronomical levels in the LGBTQ community. The Cover Project releases, you know, the surveys and studies where LGBTQ youth are like three times as more likely to commit suicide as their straight peers. So when this is happening, when they can't be themselves, when they're under assault, they hide. And then it hurts. And, you know, I know from my own experience, I worked on the Hill in the 80s and the 90s, and I couldn't be out. I couldn't be, you know, a gay man. I had to hide it. And it hurts. And I drank so much. And there's things you do that sort of backlash to not being able to live your life the way you should. Yeah. I'm not going to equate this 100% equally, but, you know, I, I have two daughters who are adults who have, have autism. I mean... Trying to communicate to other people the issues that your family is going through, the issues that your, your children are going through, when there's resistance or just complete lack of understanding of what that life experience is, you know, it doesn't make your life any easier. No, and I'm, I'm going to stop you because I think I know where you're going. It's so important for trans people, particularly trans kids, to have some a role model, somebody to look up to. Where our generation, we didn't have that. But today, they do. I mean, as an adult, you have Dr. Rachel Levine, who's the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services. And I've spoken to her a number of times. And, you know, she comes under so much assault on Twitter, hateful, hateful language. But I said, how do you deal with that? And she said, I understand that I have to remain optimistic because I know there are a lot of people who are relying on me to succeed. Then on the flip side of that, you have Dylan Mulvaney and the recent Budweiser controversy. You know, here is a 19-year-old woman who was celebrating one year in her trans life, and Budweiser sends her cancer a picture on it, and she posts it. And, you know, she's got 10 million followers. So many of them are trans kids. And what the media did wrong was they went right after what the far right was doing, Kid Rock firing guns, you know. So I wrote a column saying that the right isn't being hurt. It's trans people because of the way Budweiser was dealing with the situation. They left her hanging dry. 
And there was no support for her. They just cut her off and they allowed the hate to continue without saying stop the hate. And so I wrote this column about the LGBTQ community is the one who should be boycotting. I sent it to every single major outlet reporter who was covering it from the right's angle. These people hate trans, hate trans, hate trans. And they all wrote back to me and said, thank you for this. You opened my eyes. I get that. And so they went back and either updated their stories or wrote new stories. And so that was part of the learning curve, I think, for the media, because they were not looking at what the human costs of what that was doing to the trans community. Yeah. And that's why it's important for us to, you know, from 8 a.m. to 5 or 6 p.m. when you finish your day or if you're a journalist, maybe 10 p.m. or after that when you write things, when you publish something, understand that something that you sort of gloss over or just sort of get to to meet a deadline that you haven't really put the thought in, it may have an impact beyond what you think. Yes. I mean, we all can't be 100% on, but I think we should definitely try as much as we can to be 100% on. How does your background in PR, do you think it impacts your perspective of, you know, the way you cover things? It's funny. I've been thinking a lot about that. I always kind of fretted a little bit that I didn't specialize in something. Most people stick to healthcare or most people, you know, stick to corporate PR. And I went all over the map. At some point there was, I think it was while I was in Nielsen, I'm like, where am I going to end up in terms of all of this different background? And it is vital in the way I write because I'm able to draw on so much experience from different sectors and so many of the things that I have done. And it's been a huge help. I am not an expert in everything, but I kind of know a little bit about everything. And when you're writing a column, a lot of it is to inform. So I understand like that it's always to the LGBTQ community. And so if I can bring them a shed a little light on something through what I've been, then use that as a springboard to be able to explain what it is that I'm writing about. Maybe this isn't something you can answer with the journalism experience that you have, but having that audience, what's the advantage of having that audience? You kind of know, what are the stories? What is the angle? What is the focus that they're looking for when they come to the advocate, when they come to read your stories? So, you know, the advocate has been around almost 60 years and we've led the LGBTQ community through the gay and lesbian rights in the 70s after Stonewall and then the HIV AIDS epidemic through the 80s and mid 90s. And then we had Don't Ask, Don't Tell and then marriage equality. And now here we are again with the trans and drag queen situation. So the community and our numbers are way up. And while that is a good thing, there's a dark side to that is because people trust us and they're worried. They're worried about what's going on. If you are LGB, you are likely to know a T. So it affects us all. And, you know, the wacko George Santos was on Twitter the other day saying we should remove the T. It's people like that that, well, he's just trying to get attention. But yes, the built-in audience is hugely important and knowing that you're writing for them. And I think that's why in this day and age, you see where BuzzFeed has laid out people and the insider, when you try to be everything to everybody, first of all, nobody can do that. But second of all, you don't have the bandwidth to be able to do it because you have tight budgets and, you know, even less reporters. So our audience is built in. And that is an advantage. I will admit that knowing every single time who I am writing for. Is it an advocate audience? Is it an audience that is 
you know, we want to be on the cutting edge of advocacy for this, that we want to know what we, you know, what are our marching orders? We want to know who we need to protest, where we need to go. Is it like that? Yes or is it no. maybe a percentage of? Yeah, I think you're right, a percentage of it. And let me also go back a little bit and say that I bring in a lot of street voices. So I have talked to John Fetterman twice, for example, Sherrod Brown, senator from Ohio, Pamela Anderson, you know, people from various backgrounds, Jennifer Coolidge, who are straight but allies. Having them involved is a way for our message to get through because they spread it by lending their voice to my column. Mm -hmm. You have a, a specific audience. You have an LGBTQ plus audience that's sort of built in. But for, for the general assignment reporter who, you know, is covering local news or is covering city hall, covering the school board, what's the best way for them to cover LGBTQ issues and, you know, the trans issue and, and the um, drag queen issue locally? There's two points to it. I think when you're in a red state, writing for a, a red newspaper, for example, you will alienate your readers if you are too pro-LGBTQ. So I recognize that. I understand that. Maybe they should do a better job of balancing, but you know, this decision isn't with them. It's with the editor who's saying we need as many eyeballs as we can get. Be as provocative as you can against this community. And then there's the other point to this with a great example. When George Santos ran for Congress and he ran against Robert Zimmerman, who was another gay man. It was the first time in the country that two LGBTQ people ran for Congress. And so I had the opportunity to have a long conversation with Robert Zimmerman. And he said, you know, the media didn't have time to dwell in to the George Santos thing. The top line of that race was the fact that it was two gay men against each other. And that's how they covered it. And that's what they centered on. And then they left it alone. And he said, you know, local reporters, state reporters, you know, the Democratic Party went down in many different districts because crime was the issue and the media started focusing on crime. And so Zimmerman, he got a background document from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee with a little bit talking about Santos's fuzziness, but he didn't have money to be able to do a topo research like that. And the media didn't have time and didn't have the manpower to be able to devote to that. So yes, he slipped through. He won. And then it's after the fact that it all dies down, people are saying, well, wait a minute, who is this guy? And that's what the New York Times did. What were we thinking? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. With all of the layoffs, with the, the folding of local news outlets covering elections covering City Hall and the State House, you know, that's pretty common that we've seen that drop across the country, unfortunately. You know, you, you're in politics, you're in a PR, and you talked a little bit about it when you're in D.C. that you couldn't come out. You know, how has that sort of changed in your relationship to your job, you know, in, in more recent years? Obviously, I imagine that the advocate is probably very open with you being openly gay. <laughs> yeah, well, we're all LGBT, <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I, don't sit, I don't stand out. <laughs> So, I mean, have you seen that evolve a lot over the decades? Oh, yes. You know, if you would have said to me 20 years ago, you will succeed, or I hope I'm succeeding, in life because you are a gay man. You know, getting to this point, and it took me a long time. I actually was out for a year. I started working for Mike Bloomberg when he became UN envoy. And at the beginning of the year, rolling along, and we were working in different countries, having him meet heads of state, and I fell apart, and I ended up with severe depression. And a lot of it was the 
holding in of who I was for so many years. And now as a gay man in my late 50s, I'm comfortable with that. And now I'm making my living being it and talking about it. Even every day is a learning experience. And I even think in the media, too, Michael, I think that there are more LGBTQ people in the media who can bring a little bit of perspective to their job. You know, when I was working in corporate America, you couldn't be out. Now you have equality and diversity departments and corporations that encourage you to be out at work. So it has changed considerably, and it has changed in the media, too. What are your hopes in this new role at The Advocate? What is, what is your hoping to do? Just hoping to continue to write meaningful pieces to the point of views of other people that inspire our community, that inform our community. I also want to do more and bring, we do, in bringing in other voices uh, to our outlet, which we are doing right now. You know, always keeping honesty in the pieces. I've not held back the fact that I dealt with depression. I dealt with suicide. I dealt with coming out. I dealt with the priest abuse when I was younger. You know, you have to put yourself out there because if you don't, you're not being authentic and people will get that. I don't ever want to feel like that I'm just writing something just because I have to. Every piece should be meaningful because that will come through to the reader. And I know for the advocate, you know, we have to continue to be aggressive in covering the stories. It is going to get worse. And it's going to get worse because of the polls that came out last week that said people support these anti-trans, anti-drag laws. And the Republican state legislators around the country are going to be emboldened by that. I feel like it's just going to escalate. And somebody's going to get hurt at the end. So it's our job to make sure that we keep a focus on all of this hate and that we bring in voices to tell us how to deal with it, how to stop it, how to fight it, how to cope with it. You know, as we said, you you have a different audience than other journalists, but I think we all have that responsibility because, yes, people are going to get hurt. And that's just the way things are in America, unfortunately, the way things are, you know, I guess have always been whoever the other is becomes the target until more people begin to understand what those stories and the true impact of this hate. The drag queen community is just, it's awful what's going on right now. And the Proud Boys are disrupting these drag reading hours around the country. And it's violence. And we've already had some drag queens being beaten up, being severely injured. And the media is to blame a little bit for this. There was a report on NBC News about the drag bill in Tennessee. And they interviewed a trans gender woman who's a drag queen. So right off the bat, they conflate two different issues. They put a trans drag queen, which is the wrong message to send. And then they interviewed a mother who was against drag queens and the state legislator sponsoring the bill. The only person who was trying to point out what was going on was the transgender drag queen. This reporter did not ask the mother or did not ask the legislator if they have ever been to a drag show, been to a drag reading hour, or met a drag queen. So the piece was just heavily slanted toward this condemnation of the people that are preying on the children, which is not what's happening at all. Again, that's the, you know, before Stonewall, I mean, that's how they other the gay population is that yeah they want to indoctrinate your children they you know they want to rape your children again it's important for us to provide the context tell the stories as as they are and show the faces and the voices so that other people can begin to understand 
in a greater context. It goes back to being human. These are human beings here. And these are human beings that are trying to do some good. I know several drag queens who do drag reading hours in New York. And then I also talked to New York State Attorney General Letitia James. We did talk a little about Trump and her investigation, but the main thrust of the interview was she sponsored a dragathon in New York City. And if she would have done that two years ago, nobody would have batted an eye. But all these protesters were outside and it's just become a circus. And that's what it's become is because the media is portraying this in a way that's sensationalizing, like you said, these hot button issues that get people riled up. Sadly, people have a need to be enraged about something. And let's not give them an excuse. Let's try and work to find greater understanding and peace through good reporting, reporting the truth, sharing voices who are downtrodden and, you know, move in, in a more positive, knowledgeable way and try to quash the ignorance, I guess. That's what we should be doing. Very well said. I couldn't have said it better myself. Okay. Well, then let's end the, the, the interview here with that compliment. John, this is great. Really enjoyed the conversation and I wish you well in this new role. It's great to see somebody who has been in this industry for such a long time and, you know, you've landed in a place where I think you're going to be able to do a lot of good. Well, I really appreciate that, Michael. Thanks for the opportunity to be here and I appreciate your great questions. Thank you. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Belefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.